morning. But to begin, as you're turning there, come upon a time of year that culture knows as Halloween, but many of us look forward to as the anniversary of Martin Luther nailing those 95 theses on the Castle Church door in Wittenberg. Celebration of the Protestant Reformation and the recovery of the gospel from the darkness of the medieval period. We rightly celebrate many things about the Reformation. We, we celebrate the sufficiency of Scripture as was applied to worship because the Catholic Church had added so much to what, worship, what true worship was with the multiple, with seven sacraments, with a requirement to come to the Mass and transubstantiation, changing of the elements, belief in these things. And the Reformation brought back sufficiency of Scripture, sola scriptura, to purify the worship of God's people. More well known is the sufficiency of Scripture applied to soteriology and how we rejected all the Catholics' inventions as to how we might be made right with God, clinging only to justification by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But unfortunately, a lesser celebrated gem of the Reformation is the doctrine of assurance. The idea that, yes, you, you sitting in your chair, you can know whether you are right with God or not. You don't have to wait until you die and hope that you've done enough. You don't have to wait until you die and hope you've repented of enough sins and you might just squeak through the finish line. You can know, here and now, who you belong to. The Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, officially repudiates this. At the Council of Trent, on justification, there are multiple canons I want to read to you. Canon 12 says, If anyone saith that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in the divine mercy which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that his confidence alone is whereby we are justified, I read confidence to mean faith, let him be anathema. Canon 16 says, If anyone saith that he will for certain, of an absolute infallible certainty, have that great gift of perseverance unto the end, unless he have learned this by special revelation, let him be anathema. The idea being, if you claim to know that you're right with God, unless God spoke to you by audible voice, you're anathema. What does the word anathema mean? Well, it's a Greek word, and we have it in our Bibles, in Galatians 1.8, which reads, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema. Your English translations will read, accursed. And so the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, when it declares anathema on things we believe, they're saying, let the one who believes us be damned. Let him be cursed. This is damnable heresy, according to their view. And while many today want to minimize the difference between Roman Catholics and Protestants, the Council of Trent happened after the Reformation. These anathemas were declared after the Reformation, and they have not been repented of. And so this morning, and next, next Lord's Day, I want to look at assurance, gospel assurance. And to encourage you, I'm reading a book that uh, 
it's a 31-day read kind of thing. And it just takes writings from different uh, people in church history and what they've said about assurance. And in the introduction of the book, he asks some pointed questions that I'm now asking you. When you die, you, Christian, sitting in the seat, will God accept you into His holy heaven? Do you believe you will survive judgment day? Despite your daily struggle to live righteously in war against sin, do you have a settled confidence that you are a child of God? Are you completely cleansed by the blood of the Lamb? Is it presumptuous to claim assurance? Now, most of us sitting here today We know what kind of church this is. We know why we're here. We know what the right answers are. But do you believe them? Do you trust them? I ask you to be standing with me as we read through Colossians. And I'm going to read Colossians 2 through chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. I'm confessing my foolishness. I thought I would preach on all of this this morning. We are not going to preach on all of this this morning. We're actually only going to preach on Colossians 2, 1 through 15. But I want to read the whole bit to have the whole thing in our minds. So, Colossians 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is, a, which is Christ, in whom all, are hit, all in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Therefore, let no one pass on you, pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? 
as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above and not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Please be seated. Please bow with me as we go to the Lord together in prayer. Lord, we say it often, we need Your help this morning. We pray Your blessing on the reading and hearing of Your Word. We pray Your blessing upon what You would say to Your people this morning. Lord, I echo the words of Paul. My great struggle this morning is to encourage Your saints, to encourage them to reach all the fullness of full assurance in Christ. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I suppose I should have given you an outline before we read the text. But in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, we're looking at Paul's struggle to encourage the readers and hearers of the word to full assurance. In verses 6 through 15, we see the grounds of full assurance. That's the person and work of Christ, who he is and what he's done. In verses 16 through 23, we see that full assurance is a precious treasure to be guarded and guarded jealously. And in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, we see the promised end of assurance. So, with that, verses 1 through 5. Paul expresses, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. He has a great struggle for the people he's reaching to. And that struggle includes multiple things. It includes that their hearts would be encouraged, that their hearts would be knit together in love, that their hearts would reach all the fullness of full assurance of Christ, and that their hearts would be guarded against plausible arguments. And you're going to see this as a theme throughout Colossians 2, that there's kind of peppered these statements. Don't be deceived. Don't listen to these that would lead you astray. And then he gets to the end of the chapter and really lays out what he's talking about. But... You want to be guarded against plausible arguments. What are these plausible arguments? Well, as we see at the end of the chapter, these plausible arguments are things that would disqualify you from the faith based on what you are doing or not doing, especially in regards to human regulations. In other words, people thinking they know enough that they can add to what it means to be in Christ. And... Just to comment on, if you were to ask many conservative evangelicals today what the biggest problem in the Western church is, many would probably say it's nominalism. It's the idea that there are too many many people in the church that they're faking, they're not the real deal, or maybe they are genuine believers, but man, they're soft and they need to be whipped into shape. You need to be reading your Bible every day. You need to be praying every day. You need to be fasting. You need to be as active as I am. You need to be doing all these things. 
And there's a fear that if there's full assurance that's offered, it will encourage laziness, licentiousness, comfortability with sin, laziness, and spiritual devotion. And it will encourage lack of participation in programs at your local church, in the community, in the name of the church, or in political activism. There are people on the left and the right that want to tie your status in Christ with how active you are in promoting their political agenda. And this has to be opposed viscerally. These are plausible arguments that would cause us to lose what Paul is struggling for. That encouragement, that assurance of full riches that are in Christ. Note, Paul has not met these people. He doesn't know the names and faces of the people he's written this letter to. It says in verse 1, And for all of you who have not seen me face to face. And yet, he's not guarded, he's not worried about giving somebody false assurance of someone who's, he's, who he's not met. He's very eager to just dive in and offer the fullness of what is available in Christ. Paul does not know from experience or direct observation what the volume of good fruit or good works is produced by the recipients of this letter. Paul only has a general good report, which you see in verse 5. He's rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And yet, the encouragement that's offered would seem to indicate that that encouragement can come apart from a full knowledge of your good works and your fruit. As in, there's a deeper source by which we can offer these things. A deeper source we can look to to say, you have assurance in Christ. And it's not, we don't want to get away from ourselves. Works are an evidence of genuine faith in Christ. We know this. But the encouragement of this passage is, we're not looking at ourselves for assurance. We're not looking at what I do to gain confidence about my status in Christ. We're looking outside of ourselves. We're looking at what we will see in verses 6 through 15. The grounds of our assurance, not our performance, not what we do, not how well we keep certain regulations and what we do and do not eat and do and do not touch, but in Christ and who He is and what He's done. And you see again Paul's nervousness about this. He says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So you see in verse 4 there's this warning, and then he goes on for a little bit, and then in verse 8 he warns again, and then he's going to go on in Christ, and then he's going to get to the end and really lay on the warning. But it's showing us how fragile our assurance is. And how fragile it is when we look to anything outside of ourselves and not Christ. Our eyes are directed to Christ starting in verse 9. We have this battery of things that we have in Him. In Him, we see that Christ has the fullness of deity that dwells in Him bodily. In Him, we are filled. In Him, we are circumcised with a circumcision without hands. 
In Him we are buried and raised with Him in baptism. In Him we are forgiven all our sins, our trespasses. And in Him all the rulers and authorities are disarmed and shamed. These are all the things that we have in Him. And so to begin to walk through these, the first one in verse 9, the foundation for why the rest is so good is that in Him the the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Meaning the object of our worship is not a good man, is not the best prophet that ever walked the face of the earth, but he is the prophet as foretold by Moses. He's God in flesh. And we see this, if you think of Christology, you only have to turn back a page. Maybe you don't even have to turn back a page. Colossians 1.15, this is where we get perhaps the most beautiful declaration of who Christ is in the entire Bible. Colossians 1, Paul has told the Colossians already, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in Him... Everything might be, or he might, that in him, every, that in him, in everything, he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We can itemize what we see here, but what, what is, meant to be made so obvious that it cannot be denied, is that in Jesus Christ you have all the fullness of God. Very God of very God, as as the Nicene Creed says. There is nothing in the Father that is not in the Son. There is nothing in the Holy Spirit that is not in the Son. Everything that makes God, God, is in Jesus Christ. And this is why it is such a good thing when Paul goes on into verse 10 and says, and you have been filled in Him who is the head and rule of all authority. So what are we filled with? Who are we filled with? We are filled with God in all of His fullness. We see multiple passages that speak to the Spirit dwelling in us. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? We have multiple passages speak to Christ dwelling in us. And I, when we think of being challenged to question our assurance, one of the most uh, frequently used verses is 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Which, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And we want to stop there and say, all right, time to button down. You better do some house cleaning. And you need to really make sure there's nothing here that would say you're not a believer. That's not the point of this text. That's not even the whole verse. 2 Corinthians 13.5 goes on to say, or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. In other words, the gauntlet's may be thrown down in a sense, but... 
Paul's confident that his readers know that, that Christ is in them. He doesn't throw this down expecting that they're going to be overly vexed and troubled about their status in Christ. He throws it down confident that they know of themselves that Jesus Christ is in them. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. In Ephesians 3 we read, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And we don't even have to go outside of Colossians. I know we have, but verse 27 of chapter 1. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we see that in Christ dwells the fullness of deity. He is very God of very God. And even better, Christ dwells in us. What does that mean? The rest of the paragraph goes on to itemize what this means. In Him, we are circumcised with a circumcision without hands. Now, we all know what circumcision is. It's a surgery that was to mark the people of God as belonging to Him. But while this, was, this sign was pointing to the special relationship Israel was to have with God, the physical surgery was not enough of an indicator to show that you truly had right relationship with God. We see this explicitly in Romans 9. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And this is not just a New Testament idea. You see this in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So even in the Old Testament, yes, there's a circumcision of the flesh, but it's acknowledged that this is not enough. If you're merely circumcised in your flesh, it's not good enough. There's a circumcision of the heart that must occur. There's a heart change that's got to happen. And when we get to the prophets, we see that the judgment is, by and large, the people of God are not circumcised in the heart. Jeremiah 9, verses 25-26 through 26 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. And so we see, even in the Old Testament, there's a recognition that there's a spiritual surgery that has to happen. There's a surgery of the flesh that was necessary to be part of that old covenant community of God. But even then, spiritual surgery had to happen.
And so we see that circumcision as a physical sign pointed to the idea of the removal of sinful flesh that you might be purified and able to be right and be in right relationship with God. And we are told that here in Colossians, this spiritual surgery is done in Christ, in Him. And just to pause for a moment, this should, if we think in terms of assurance, I can perform physical surgeries, I can't perform spiritual surgeries. (laughs) Nobody can perform spiritual surgeries. And if the Lord has performed a spiritual surgery on me, what on earth makes me think that that can be undone? That the offending member is going to be reattached and I'm going to be made impure again. But there's more that we have in Him. In Him, we are buried and raised with Him in baptism. And we can look at Romans 6 and see what, what this means for us. Romans 6, 1-11. through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And the Scriptures speak similarly about baptism. Anybody can be dipped in water. Anybody can be made wet. But there's a spiritual baptism that must occur. And that spiritual baptism is when we enter into Christ's experience and die with Him and are raised in newness of life with Him in His resurrection. In Christ, the old man is dead and left in the grave. In Christ, the new man is raised and delivered from the power of the second death. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3.3, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And we know that in Christ, we have this born again experience. In Christ, we can say with Paul in 1 Corinthians, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And again, you read that, and I don't know how we can't be moved to celebrate what we have in Christ and the immovable nature of it. That we should be assured of what we have in Christ. So what have we said so far? In Him, in Him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Him we are filled. In Him we are circumcised with the circumcision without hands. In Him we are buried and raised with Him in baptism. In Him we are forgiven all of our trespasses. Not only are we born again, as if that wouldn't be enough, but we're born again with our debt canceled. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. 
And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And there are two images here that are both wonderful to meditate upon. One is canceling debt and the other is crucifixion. To talk about the canceling of the debt, Caleb preached a few weeks ago on Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. And you have this man that owes so much debt that it's greater than the gross domestic product of some countries. Impossible debt. And in his foolishness, the man says, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. It is an impossible task even if he could offer real money. But we, when we recognize the spiritual significance of the parable and our infinite sin debt, not only is it a debt I can never pay off, but it's a, ne- it's a debt I can't even make progress on. What do I have to pay with? Good deeds, righteous works. Isaiah 64.6 says they're filthy rags. They're a polluted garment. So if you imagine... The parable of the unforgiving servant, the, un- the, the servant goes to the king and says, I know I have a big debt. Be patient with me, I'll pay it back. Here's a wheelbarrow full of polluted uh, gar- garments. And next week, I'm going to have a truckload. And the week after that, I'm going to have a, uh, maybe three or four truckloads, and we'll begin to make progress on this debt. And you begin to see the insanity of this the utter insanity of thinking that I can pay off my debt in any way, shape, or form. And in fact, the king is going to be offended the more you try. The more polluted garments you throw at his feet and fill his house with, the more offended he's going to be. The angrier he's going to be with you. And so when we're given this impossible debt, we're told in him, in Christ, the debt is canceled. Wiped away. Forgotten. And additionally is crucified. We know that crucifixion is one of the most horrific things man has imagined that they can do to another man. And yet the image here is something we should celebrate. What's being crucified in this text? Our trespasses. Our sins are what's being nailed to the cross. Meaning that our sins go up there to die and never be taken up again never live again, forgotten, gone, canceled. This brings us to what we read this morning in Psalm 103, verses 10 through 12. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, thank God. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. The debt's canceled. The sins are nailed to the cross, dead and buried. Separated, totally and completely. Never to trouble us again. This is what we sing of in the great hymn, It Is Well. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. O my soul.
Beloved, we need to cling to this. This is what we're promised in Christ. Your sins are nailed to the cross. All of them. Every last one of them. And you bear them no more. The debt's canceled. The trespasses are done away with. They are dead, buried, crucified. And the last one of the things we have in Him. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. He's not merely talking about earthly human authorities. This is cosmic. And it begins, your mind should go back to the very beginning of Scripture. What we call the Proto-Evangelium, the first offer of the Gospel, the first promise of the Gospel. What do we have there? God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And here from the very beginning, there is warfare between God's people and the devil and all the spiritual forces of darkness. And the devil, he likes to fight. And he's good at what he does. So good, in fact... When you look at Genesis 4, and I recognize that this is a debatable translation of this text, but Martin Luther would translate what Eve says here. We read, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Martin Luther translates this, I have gotten a man, the Lord. Now what does that mean? What, was Martin, what did Martin Luther mean when he wrote that? Martin Luther mean that he understood Adam and Eve to so believe the promise given in Genesis 3.15 that someone's coming to crush the head of the serpent. Well, here he is. I've gotten a man. And he's the one that's going to crush the head of the serpent. They so believed and hoped in what God promised them that they would be delivered now. But we know that's not the case. That their hopes were dashed when the devil took the heart of Cain and used him to slay his brother. And we know the devil did this because we're told in 1 John 3. 1 John 3.12, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. So we see from the very beginning, the devil is good at waging his warfare. He's good at what he does. We see this theme continue in Genesis 3 when it comes to... Lam- or Not Genesis 3, Genesis 5. You get to Lamech the father of Noah. He names his son Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. The ground has been cursed. This is the one that's going to crush the head of the serpent. This is the one who's going to restore what was cursed and lost. And I don't fault them for their faith. I don't fault them for hoping and believing and trusting. But their hope was misplaced. And Noah was not the one that would deliver them. We don't see Satan again explicitly until Job 1. And what is, Job, or what is Satan doing in Job? He is the accuser of the brethren. He is the accuser of Job. He is the prosecution that's meant to show this is not one of yours. 
He's not one of yours. He's one of mine. And he continues to wage his war. He destroys everything that Job has. He later even destroys his body. And the difficulty many have with Job and I had with Job is that it seems like the devil's just gone after this. But I don't think so. I I think the devil maintains his presence throughout the rest of the book and continues his warfare. You see the accusing still happening, right? The devil's the accuser. And his accusing work continues through Job's comforters, Job's friends. They're acting, in a sense, as champions of the devil. Waging war on his behalf and accusing on his behalf. We come to Job 40, where the Lord has entered the scene. And he says to Job, will you, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? In verses 10 through 14, the Lord says, Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I will acknowledge to you that you are in the right. or Your own right hand can save you. Then I will acknowledge that your own right hand can save you. And when we understand the fullness of what's being said here, Job is questioning God's justice. And God says, all right, Job, if you're questioning my justice, you try being judge of the earth and bringing in all the wicked and judging them, and then I'll acknowledge your own right arm can save you. And then as if to pick up on this, we are immediately introduced to Behemoth and Leviathan. This is where you might be, if you haven't heard this before, you might be thinking I'm out to lunch or something. (laughs) But I am convinced that there's a lot to be said about this. When you look at the might of Leviathan, you get the image of this indomitable creature, this terrifying creature that cannot be stopped, cannot be opposed, wages war against humanity. And especially when you look at the final verses... On earth, there is not his like, a creature without fear. He is unique. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. You might ask yourself, are we still talking about a sea monster? Or are we talking about something else? And I think we are talking about something else. Isaiah 27.1 connects some dots for us. Isaiah 27.1 says, In that day the Lord with His hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and He will slay the dragon that is in the sea. You're seeing some dots connecting. Leviathan is a serpent-like dragon. And the Lord will slay him in judgment. Here with Leviathan, serpent and dragon are brought together. And the Leviathan has dominion over the sea, which I think it is significant. You see the beasts in Daniel's dreams. Where do they come from? They come from the sea. Consider then with these threads how I do believe they connect in Revelation 12. I ask you to turn there with me. 
We have this devil that has waged his war against humanity from the very beginning. Not just against all humanity, but against particularly the seed of the woman. The faithful seed of God. God's people. We see in verses 1-6 through an account of a woman giving birth to Christ. The woman, I believe, is the church. The devil sought to destroy this child, but the child got away from him and was raised up to the right hand of God. Verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to, to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their own lives, even unto death. So we see the threads brought together. The serpent, the dragon, the accuser, all brought together in Satan. And how is the devil defeated? We read, we read Job 41. Nothing we can do. He's far too mighty for us. Weapons of our warfare are nothing to him. But he's defeated by the blood of the Lamb. He's crushed by the seed of the woman. The Lord Jesus Christ. And I think this lights up our understanding when we read of texts like Psalm 74, verses 12 through 14. Yet God, my King, is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the earth. I think this text is explicitly connecting Genesis 3.15 to Leviathan. You crushed the head of this sea serpent, this dragon, this enemy of our souls. And when I think of this, the accuser has been cast down, the accuser is done. I think of the words that we read in John 8. Jesus says to the woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. The accuser's been destroyed. There's none to condemn you. And neither does Christ condemn you. There is no condemnation in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now to reflect upon this, we've seen that in Him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in Him we are filled In Him we are circumcised with the circumcision without hands. In Him we are buried and raised with Him in baptism. In Him we are forgiven all our trespasses. And in Him all the rulers and authorities are disarmed and shamed. How much of this depends on you? How much of this is because of what you've done or what you can do? The answer is none. And it's so explicit. Like, circumcision of the heart, it's literally a surgery done without hands. 
I can't do it. Literally. When we are buried and raised with Him in baptism, the Lord may have authority to lay down His life and take it up again, but I don't. I can't lay down my life and take it up again. God has canceled the record of debt by nailing my sins and trespasses to the cross of Christ, killed them, and I can't bring them back to life. The rulers and authorities are disarmed and shamed. I can't restore the devil to his status that he had before he was defeated. I can't undo the work of God. If all of this is 100% a work of Christ in us and for us without anything from us, why would we think for a moment that we can do anything to undo it? I can't empty Christ of His divinity. I can't empty myself of the infinite God who's decided to take residence in me. I can't undo the spiritual surgery. I cannot kill what God has raised in Christ. I cannot raise what God has killed in crucifying my sins to the cross. And again, I can't restore the lost station of the principalities and powers. Christian, I hope that this week you will reflect on these things. What you have in Christ. How it was done through all of Him and none of you. And what that means, you can't undo it. And I'm confident with Paul that the knowledge of this will not encourage you to laziness, licentiousness, or lack of participation and work to make the kingdom go forward. I'm confident that knowing these things is actually going, as he says in Hebrews 6, that we might not be sluggish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to to apprehend these things. That we might embrace all the fullness of the riches that are in assurance in Christ. Assurance that our status is based entirely on the work of Christ and none of our own. And I pray that this would cause us to love you more, to hate our sin more, to worship you with more zeal because you are worthy and you are lovely and you are so deserving. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.